We want to move on now to the reading and proclaiming of God's Word. And uh, we're still going through the book of Exodus. And we're coming here to Israel crossing through the sea. The most famous episode in the Old Testament. And for Israel, it was the most significant event for their history and their theology. So listen carefully as you hear it read and see if you can pick out one or two reasons why this is more important than anything else in the Old Testament. Why does this event set the stage for all that follows? Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. A reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness was shut them, has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Then the the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. 
Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we're grateful that you have recorded this for us, and we're grateful for your uh, amazing act of rescue and salvation. And we ask that you would help us, uh, by the power of your Spirit, to apply this uh, to our hearts and to our lives and our community uh, today and the rest of this week. Uh, Please use this to make us more and more your renewed, reborn, saved people in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thinking about this passage actually uh, made me rewatch uh, a, a recent movie that I'd seen. The movie is Dunkirk. It's about that miraculous evacuation of hundreds of thousands of British and French soldiers in 1940 when they were surrounded by the German army with their backs up against the sea. It's a great movie because it's terrifying. It puts you on the beach while the German bombers and fighters are picking off helpless soldiers. It puts you below deck on multiple boats as they're filling up with water and sinking, soldiers drowning. It puts you in the water in an oil slick as it catches fire. It puts you in the cockpit of a spitfire as it submerges under the water and you can't get out of the cockpit. The whole time in the background you hear this constant tick of an old watch or bass notes sounding like your heart pounding in your ears. It all works together to make you feel what those soldiers felt. Trapped. Certain to die or be captured. It must have been an incredibly traumatic experience, and records show that it was. Many survivors had breakdowns. Hospitals reported much higher levels of shell shock and depression. And after the war, survivors struggled with alcoholism and and suicide. You know what it feels like to be trapped. Like when the hero of the story is running from the bad guys and he turns down an alleyway only to find that it's a dead-end alley and the bad guys are closing in. Now they're not even running anymore. They can just walk and the hero's fate is sealed. I bet we can all relate. Whether we felt trapped physically or psychologically, emotionally, even spiritually, being trapped is traumatic. And that's how Israel felt here in chapter 14. Their backs are up against the sea. In front of them, the Egyptian army is closing in. There's nowhere to run and there's no chance in fighting back. It would either be a complete slaughter or back to slavery for them. And the incredible thing about this episode is that God knowingly led Israel there. He directed them down this dead-end alley and he lured the bad guys in. Why? Well, perhaps because, like I just said, we've all been trapped before. And like we'll see here, when we feel trapped, we start making deals. We start losing our grip. We can lose ourselves. So God does something that Israel will always remember. This rescue through the sea is the defining moment of their relationship with God. It's how God's people are supposed to understand God's rescue and salvation. Through the exodus... God tells us what to do when we find ourselves trapped. He says to us, you were dead. Now you're alive and you are mine. So live like it. You were dead. Now you're alive and you are mine. So live like it. First, you were dead. To briefly catch you up, remember Israel was delivered out of slavery in Egypt. They left on foot the night of Passover. They've likely been traveling now for a few weeks. And their ultimate destination is the land of Canaan. 
but they're not taking the most direct route along the seashore. Instead, they're going through the wilderness, following God's lead. And that's where we arrive here at uh, verses 1 through 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of pi Hiharoth, between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall camp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So Israel's making its way, avoiding the Egyptian forts. But then God has them turn back, basically uh, to the southwest, to set up camp with their backs to this sea. Now, you might be asking, well, where exactly is this? You maybe have heard some different things. There's a few possibilities of where this actually took place. You might have heard that the term Red Sea actually means Reed Sea, and there's some debate about that. But it just so happens, because of the place names, that we, we have found a place that fits uh, this description called the Bitter Lakes. It's southeast of the Nile Delta. 3,000 years ago, they weren't just lakes. They were likely connected to the Red Sea by the Gulf of Suez. So Israel walked through what is now a large lake, but at the time was the northern end of the Red Sea. That's the most likely scenario. But either way, God sends them back towards Egypt and commands them to encamp in a very vulnerable location so that Pharaoh will be enticed to come out and attack Israel and God will defeat him. Now, part of why God is doing this we see in verse 4. So the Egyptians will know who he is. Remember, many Egyptians saw God's power in Egypt. They actually decided to join Israel as they left. Likely for a number of reasons, God wants to decisively defeat the Egyptians at war. So God makes his people the bait, sitting ducks, easy prey for the Egyptian army. And he makes sure Pharaoh goes for it by hardening his heart. Now briefly, last year, I preached a whole sermon on the subject of Pharaoh's heart being hardened and how that sounds unfair to us. If you have questions about that, please go back, listen to that sermon. It's online from almost exactly a year ago. But just to summarize here, God is not changing Pharaoh's character. Hardening of heart is actually confirming character. It literally means to encourage, to strengthen. God's giving Pharaoh courage to live out his character. Hardening ensures that Pharaoh doesn't escape justice for his murderous reign. And it clarifies the true story. It creates a no-spin zone, no fake news that Pharaoh was actually magnanimous and really wanted to let Israel go all along. He's actually kind and generous slave master. No. Hardening Pharaoh's heart leads to the ultimate revelation that God is in charge, not Pharaoh. God should be served, not Pharaoh. Which is actually in doubt for Israel. Serve God or serve Pharaoh. Pharaoh comes out with his best units. It'd be like all the people of San Jose in a chaotic mass up in Alviso, bay to their backs, and the best armored divisions of the U.S. Army and Apache attack helicopters and F-35 jets coming at full speed at them. It would be terrifying. Look at verses 10 through 12. The people of Israel cried out loud, right? They saw that the Egyptians were marching after them. They feared greatly. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Israel says angrily, we are going to die. We should have remained serving Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the one to serve. See, when we feel trapped, 
we start making deals. We start making bad decisions. We lash out and do whatever it takes to survive another day. The survivors of Dunkirk spoke of the horror of pushing lifeboats packed with men away from the larger ships because there was no more room. Or leaving men to drown in the ocean who were screaming for help because they couldn't delay anymore. Israel lashed out at Moses, completely forgetting all that God had done in the previous months to free them from slavery. The Israelites knew and saw they were trapped and they were going to die. And this seems to have been God's intention. Why? Well, here's the thing. We are in the same situation. All of us are trapped. Outside of a miracle, there's no getting out well from these traps. We're trapped by our biology and DNA. We can't get around that. We're trapped by our culture and its values. We can't think our way out of that. We're trapped by our parents' choices and the choices of generations before us. We're trapped by our own choices. It's been said more than once that marriage can feel like a trap. You're stuck with the same person for the rest of your life. It is a trap. You are stuck. Some of us are trapped in marriage. Some of us are trapped in singleness. Some of us are trapped with a puppy we're stuck with for the rest of its life. There's a great Babylon Bee article that just came out. Some people feel trapped in church's community time. You have to stand up and greet one another. Hey, that feels like a trap to some of you. Some of us can only make money doing one thing. We're trapped in a particular profession or job. And of course, we're trapped by mortality. Death is coming for us and there is no stopping it. And after death comes answering for all we've done. We are trapped in multiple ways, and I hope you can recognize it. And without a miracle in those traps, we either do battle with the thing that's trapping us or we become its slave. When we feel trapped in a marriage, we slowly destroy it. When we feel trapped in a profession, we slowly grow bitter. When we feel trapped by our upbringing, we often repeat the dysfunction in ways that are hidden to us. Without God, being trapped is the human condition. God wanted to make it crystal clear to Israel and to all its future generations. You were trapped. You were dead. You were either going to be killed by Pharaoh or be his slave. But now, you are alive. And you are mine. Look at verses 13 and 14. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. God will make a way for Israel. Israel can do nothing, and they will do nothing. They don't even seem to have any faith. They're simply told to stand, shut up, and watch. God puts a pillar of cloud and fire between the Egyptians and Israel, and then he parts the sea all night long so that the Israelites can cross. During the daylight the next day, the pillar leaves, and the Egyptian army begins to cross into the the dry land, and the waters come back over them and drown them. Israel will never be pursued by Egypt again. Israel was as good as dead, but now they were alive. They were taken from Pharaoh, and now they belong to God alone. Israel didn't free themselves. They could not have. They had no escape, but God made a way where there was no way. Israel needed to be made aware of that, needed to see that God alone is their rescuer and savior. 
Back in the early fall of 2014, we uh, pastors and elders of Grace Silicon Valley, the church that planted South Bay, we had a plan to raise money specifically to help my family build a, buy a house, not build a house, buy a house. The church would loan us a significant amount of money to help pay for a down payment. I happened to be in charge of the church's budget, and I was a little concerned about fundraising during year-end. I was concerned that that might cannibalize year-end giving, which is so important to church's finances. But it did appear that everything was in order. One Friday, Friday night, though, in the early fall, I couldn't sleep. Something was bothering me about the budget. So I got up, I went downstairs, fired up the old laptop, and I dug into the numbers. And I realized what was bothering me is I hadn't updated the expense changes that had happened throughout 2014. So as I updated the expense creep that happens in churches, our projections showed that we actually didn't have the margin to risk this cannibalizing, to risk this fundraiser for year-end. There would be no loan. So I went up to bed sad, embarrassed that I had made a mistake. I was going to have to write the elders that week, telling them the plan was off. I was also thankful that God had shown me this, that I didn't lead our church down a ruinous path. Slept on it, lived with it for Saturday. On Sunday, I told my wife, Erin, I made a mistake with the numbers. We're not going to be able to buy a house. Not now. Maybe not ever. I don't know. I'm sorry. The next day, Monday morning, I was driving between um, appointments. Someone from Grace called me up there up in Palo Alto. They called me and said, Bob, we just want to let you know that we're uh, transferring $170,000 to Grace from our brokerage account. Just be looking for that. I said, okay. A few hours later, in the afternoon, someone emails a different family. says, hey, Bob, we're going to be transferring $75,000 of stock to Grace. Um, make, sure you, make sure you check on that. Make sure it arrives. So in less than six hours, $250,000, a quarter of a million dollars came in to the church. Our finances were set. Our finances were okay. We could go ahead with the fundraiser. And we bought a house that next spring. Point is, if I hadn't gone back and checked the numbers, I wouldn't have known how special this was and how much we needed God. After explaining this to my best friend Jerry, he put it like this, God woke you up on Friday night to show you you didn't have the money that he was going to give you on Monday. Who gets the glory? God. Why do we own a house? Because of God. Who does the house belong to? God. Who's in charge of our future? God. My dreams and plans had to die in order to understand the truth. And that's one of the things God is showing Israel here. You were as good as dead, but I saved you. You are alive because of me. Israel exists because of this miracle crossing of the sea. They are reborn and now belong to God. And throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament, Israel looked back at this miracle as their defining moment. Now, since then, Jesus has come. And he did something even greater than parting the sea and drowning the Egyptians. On the cross and in the tomb, he parted death and he destroyed sin. So that now all who are united to him are alive and free and belong to him. And this event here, this crossing the sea, it's supposed to help us understand what Jesus has done. In fact, in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke, this, it's even called Jesus' exodus. His death and resurrection is called by Moses and Elijah at the Mount of Transfiguration, his exodus. And just as Israel passed through the sea 
on dry ground. We also participate physically in Jesus' exodus through baptism. Baptism into Christ is crossing through the sea, passing through the waters. We pass through death and we come out on the other side reborn. And Paul makes that connection explicit between baptism and crossing the sea in 1 Corinthians 10. Jesus calls his coming death and resurrection what elsewhere is called his exodus. He calls it his baptism. This is what it means to be baptized. You were dead, trapped by death and sin and biology and culture and history and lots of other things. But Jesus parted death. He defeated sin and he is risen. Being baptized into him means identifying with him, being united to him. You die with him, you rise with him. Baptism is the sign and seal that you're on the other side of the sea and that your enemies are defeated in Jesus. The crossing of the sea is a really helpful way to understand this. It even helps explain why our infants are baptized. Surely there were babies in Israelite mother's arms as they crossed on dry ground across the sea. Even though those children were not cognizant of it at the time, God was freeing them from slavery and giving them a new story and a new relationship with him. They were going to grow up in a new reality. Salvation and rescue was something done to them, something done for them. Now they were safe and alive and belonged to God, and that's the reality of baptism. The Passover and Exodus were only the beginning for Israel. It marked the start of a new identity and a relationship with God, and the same is true for baptism. Israel was to look back at the Exodus and Passover and see their lives and their future through the lens of God's miraculous rescue. The Christian is supposed to do the same with their baptism. It defines us, and it is the pattern for living in the present. Because the point of the Exodus is not just that Israel was saved once. You were dead, now you are alive and belong to God, so live like it. Live like it. Let the exodus, and for us baptism, let it shape your present and future. Look at the end of the passage, verses 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They feared the Lord and believed the Lord, and they trusted Moses. This is what they most needed to get them safely to Canaan, the promised land. They were going to have to be loyal to God and trust God through Moses' leadership. There, of course, would be hostile nations and peoples along the way. How would Israel deal with them, having no real army or weapons? How would they face the enemy and not shrink back and cave in? See, God starts their journey by trapping them in a dead-end alley and having the greatest army in the world come after them. And God completely destroys that army. If God can defeat the Egyptians with all those chariots, the best weapons money can buy, what does Israel have to be scared of on their journey? See, this is the ultimate statement of God's power, ultimate picture of his salvation of Israel. So Israel can now move forward in faith through the wilderness, trusting God. Easier said than done, isn't it? Moses was right when he said that Israel would never see the Egyptians again. Yet as we read the story of Israel in the wilderness, Egypt continues to exert power 
over their imaginations and wills. More than once, Israel feels the tug to go back to Egypt, where there is more predictable food and water supply, even if it meant slavery. So the Exodus, like baptism, it's just the beginning. God's people have to learn to live out their new life and freedom. There will be lesser traps that tempt Israel and us to compromise or give up. Whether it's a troubled marriage, stagnating career, painful past, the dull future. What we see in this exodus, and even more fully in our baptism, is that there will never be a true dead-end alley for you. God has made a way where there is no way. Your guilt, your mistakes, your choices, your commitments, your scars... Even your mortality and the mortality of your loved ones, these never have to hem you in or trap you and destroy you. There is always a way out through the water. And it's the water of baptism uniting you to Christ as you look to him in faith. Now I understand the story of the reformer Martin Luther. When he would face temptation, he would repeat over and over again to himself, I am baptized. I am baptized. He's reminding himself, I'm on the other side. I'm not trapped. Because Jesus is the way out of the trap. How? Well, it's like platform nine and three quarters at King's Cross Station in London. This is the platform that gets you on the Hogwarts Express in the universe of Harry Potter. Of course, no one can see platform nine and three quarters. The way you get there is by walking straight at the barrier between platform nine and platform ten. Don't stop. Don't be afraid. Run if you must. But you walk straight into a brick wall and come out the other side in a new magic dimension. You could only do this if you believe there was actually something on the other side. And baptism tells you there's something on the other side. So you walk through the wall, believing that. You walk into the wall of addiction, the wall of bitterness. The wall of guilt, the wall of injustice, whatever is trapping you, you walk into that wall, believing that Jesus is with you and can pull you through on the other side. Because Jesus walked through the trap of poverty, the trap of racism, the trap of family dysfunction, the trap of injustice and oppression. Jesus walked through the trap of loneliness, the trap of suffering, the trap of death, the dead end trap of hell. Jesus walked through it all. He was tempted, trapped in every way, yet remained without sin. And now from heaven he intercedes for us and pours out his spirit upon us. So now we can have the mind of Christ and not just think what our culture or internet tells us to think. Now we can face suffering and hope with purpose through Jesus' help. Now we can live up to our promises and our word as Jesus does. Now we can forgive others as Jesus forgives us. Now we can see God knitting our children into his story even as he knitted us in. And now even as death approaches, we can fear not, stand firm, and watch God fight for us and save us. This happens as we revisit our exodus, our baptism. We see our sin and old nature being killed and drowned, and our new identity and life being formed. We daily live as dead to sin and alive to God. My daughter Rennie's favorite book and movie right now is Wonder. Wonder was made a few years ago. It's about a a 10-year-old boy named Augie 
who was born with a, a rare medical facial deformity and has undergone 27 surgeries to try to make his face look more normal, but it doesn't look normal. And though he's been homeschooled his whole life, now he's entering fifth grade and he, he's going to go to a private school, be normalized in a sense. He and his parents know he's going to be teased and bullied, but he has to face the world at some point, and now's that time. As they're dropping him off at his first day of school, his dad, who's played by Owen Wilson, pulls him aside for some final words. He says two things. One, only raise your hand once per class, even if you know all the answers, except in science, crush them. <laughs> two, you're going to feel like you're all alone, Augie, but you're not. See, Augie's parents knew that they were sending him into a trap. He was being thrown to the lions of merciless, cruel, fifth-grade taunting. So they remind him that he has them to come home to. They are in his corner. They are rooting for him. But baptism is so much better than that. You might feel trapped and all alone, but you're not. Jesus is with you literally because baptism reminds you that he's given you his spirit Today's Pentecost, this is what we celebrate. He has poured out his spirit on his people. And by his spirit, Jesus can be with each of us individually as we trust him. He can walk with us out of our traps, including the greatest trap of all, death. We all were dead. And if you've been baptized into Jesus, you are alive now and you belong to God. So by his grace and mercy, you can live like it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that you have done amazing, great things in history, uh, at the Red Sea, at the cross, and in our lives. You are uniting us to your son, Jesus, and enabling us to live new lives, dead to sin and alive to you. I pray that you would help us to do that this morning. I pray for people here who are considering these things, who are not yet baptized, that you would be drawing them to you, that they would want this sign, that they would want to pass through these waters and come out the other side and know Jesus is with them. Please make us your pilgrim people as we go through this wilderness in 21st century Silicon Valley. Enable us to trust you and to face whatever traps that are before us. Help us to walk through them with Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.